As we are in the middle of this, uh, this series, we just started, we just kicked it off. So if you are new today, if this is your first time today, you haven't missed much. We only did three verses of the first chapter last week, and so this, this week we're going to carve out more. Um, but um, there is a, a, a available to you the, uh, something that's called the Ezekiel Journal, and it's the whole book of Ezekiel, but every other page is a blank page where you can take notes. And so there are 22 books here and now that are going to the first 22 who signed up last week. So if that was you, go check the welcome table because there's a list there of the people who, who get that book. Uh, and it's $7. And so buy that. If, if you don't get it by the end of the week, I'm releasing it to the public to see who else wants them. And if you want an order, make sure that you sign up so that I can put the order in to get the other books. They'll come a little bit later. Uh, but we went through the book of Acts last year and a lot of people did that through that journal. And so it's, it's a great tool to have. I invite you to have that. But that's not the sermon. That's just a little, little announcement there. Uh, we are in Ezekiel, still chapter 1, and going into a more sobering truth here this morning. And as I uh, opened this up and thought about what, how's the best way to preach this text and think about it, a question came to mind. How many of you have ever disobeyed your parents? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah? You can raise your hand if you'd like. I know that's my shtick. I always ask you to raise your hand at the beginning. And I don't know if you're getting tired of it. But, but yeah, I mean, you disobeyed your parents. How many of you have disobeyed your parents in public? Anyone do that? Yeah. And made the fatal mistake in thinking that they can't do anything. It's public, right? They can't do anything. They're not going to make, make a fool of themselves or show their real, real, true colors. I've done that many a times. And my parents did not play that game of, oh, it's okay. It's in public and we'll talk about it later. No, they handled that right then and there. But they had a progression. There was a parental progression of intervention, if you will. And the first thing was, if I was showing out, there was a change in parental proximity, Right? Mom or dad would come a little closer to actually mom, but dad had no patience. He, he just went to the, the, to the end of the intervention. But my mom, she would come over and probably maybe pull you in a little closer. And now if, you've, if you're close to your mom as you're showing out, that's not love. That's pretty much a, a message to you like, knock it off, right? And then if that didn't work, if the proxemics didn't work, the next level as she levels up in her, in her parenting is the look. Now, I have, uh, I don't know if I have my dad's look power with my own children just yet, but my dad had a look that could snap us all to attention to this day, and I'm 41 years old, right? And I have the same eyes as my dad, and every now and then I like to mess with my sisters and flash the dad look to them, and they're like, stop it, stop it. I don't, you know, you're making me feel like I'm in trouble. So physical touch, the look, the next level is then the voice change, Right? The tone of voice switches, and every parent knows it too when you're in public. When a parent's voice changes, and you don't even have to be a parent, just anyone knows, right? When that parent voice changes, you want to look at the child and be like, you're on your last leg here, little sweetheart. You're going to need to get this together before your parents lose their mind, right? And then if that doesn't work, it is a full removal from the situation. You scoop that kid up, and out you go. Sorry, thank you. And you walk out to the long walk in the car. Don't come after you, right? That's what, you know, the parental ways, right? And there's usually further consequences. I think you all have witnessed this with me and my children on several occasions. We don't have to go into it. I do remember a time where I was giving the children's message, and Caleb decided he wanted to play with the microphone on the pew, not once, twice, but thrice times, not heeding any of those warnings, and the tone of voice changed, and everyone in the sanctuary was like, ooh, like they knew Pastor Mike was about to show his real true colors, right? 
And at that time, I wasn't in pastor mode. I was in parent mode, and the child needed to be taught. Today in Ezekiel, we as God's children, as we open up this passage, we're getting a lesson. We're being taught. We're being, uh, Ezekiel is getting a vision from the Lord as he's being called into his role as prophet, and it's a very sobering truth. It's a very great vision that he beholds. He, Ezekiel, and we're going to read some of it too, Ezekiel actually beholds the full glory of God, the full glory of God, which would be, you would think would be fantastic, right? Amen, hallelujah. When Peter sees it on the transfiguration, Jesus' face is glowing, Moses sees the glory of God, and his face is shining, and everything is great. Ezekiel sees the glory of God, he falls face down, <laughs> he just face plants into the ground, because what he is seeing is, is too much. God is revealing a truth, a sobering, an earth-shaking truth that all of us, even today, we need to sit with and understand. In order to get to the good stuff, we got to understand what God is saying here to Ezekiel and to his people. God's children at this time have put on a public display of rebellion. They have showed out. And the natural progression of parental invention that God is using has reached to the removal from the situation. I need to remove you from this here with further consequences. And Moses' plea, if you remember the Old Testament, after the golden calf, God wanted to rain down destruction then, and Moses pleaded and said, don't, what would they, basically, what would the other nations think of you? And if you wiped out your own people, and so God staves off that punishment in part, that's no longer in play here with Ezekiel's vision. God's ready to go full throttle. The children need to know the truth. We need to know the truth. And the truth comes in the form of judgment, punishment, and consequences. Aren't you all glad you came back from the retreat, right? Yeah, yes, I won't leave you here, so just stay with me. I won't leave you in the miry muck. Israel has rejected, they have rebelled, and now God has set himself against the one, set himself against them. But remember what I said last week. There is a trifold purpose as to why we're doing Ezekiel. The Old Testament is rich. And it is, a, it is a story from start to finish, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it is a continuation of God's story of redemption. And what we can get from the Old Testament is, first and foremost, understanding the true character of God, all of it. The good, the bad, the scary, the ugly, everything that we can know, we discover that here. So that's what we're going to do through Ezekiel, study and know the true character of God, everything. It is also for us to understand our true nature, to truly understand the brokenness that we have made this world and the brokenness that we welcome into our lives and that we put onto other people's lives. We got to understand that. We got to understand the source of it and why we continue to go and choose down those ways. We have to in order for the third point of why we're doing Ezekiel to see how God is redeeming it. So we're going to see his character, we're going to see our true nature, but we're also going to see how God is working within the mess to bring about our true created selves, what he had always intended us to be. But before we get there, we go through this sobering truth, this vision of Ezekiel, that even though God so loves the world that we know through Jesus, we must never forget that for God so judges the world as well even you and me. 
All right, so let's open up the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 4 through the end, through 28. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read a chunk of it, and then we're going to, and then we're going to try to summarize, because this is a lot. So if you've ever read through Revelation or heard of Revelation, and you hear all the images and things, that's because John, who wrote Revelation, had Ezekiel's prophecy kind of with him. And so you're going, there is some similarities through that. But as you read this vision, you're going to read through like a creature and things, you're like, what, what does all this mean? And if you ever read the Bible just on your own without any study helps, you might gloss over this and think, I don't understand what it means. I'm just going to keep on keeping on until I get to the good stuff. But there is so much packed into this vision that helps us understand not only the rest of Ezekiel, but understand our condition and the true nature of God. So we're going to read here. What I want you to do is if you have your Bibles that you like to write in, underline anything that has to do with motion and movement. That way I don't have to keep telling you, underline this, underline that. Just anything that has to do with motion and movement, it'll make sense here in a minute. Ezekiel 1 verses 4 through 28. Ezekiel says, as I look, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north And a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness. But each had four faces and each of them had four wings. And their legs were straight and their soles of their feet were like the calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides they had human hands. And the four had their faces and their wings. Thus, their wings touched one another, and each of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, they had a human face, and then they had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of an ox on the left, the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, and each of which touched the wing of another, while the two covered their bodies." And each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. They went without turning as they went. As for the likeness of living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire. Their appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright. And out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of flashes of lightning. You got all the movement? A lot of movement there. Four creatures, four faces, wings that are touching, and they move without turning as they went. That was a repeated phrase. Anytime the Old Testament or the New Testament repeats a phrase, you ought to underline it because it's important. They moved without turning as they went, which means they could go north, south, east, and west without turning, if you can imagine that. I don't know how you see that in a vision. I'm not Ezekiel. That's what he wrote. But that's what it means, that they can go in any direction without having to turn into that direction. So then verses 15 through 21 goes on to explain these things uh, like wheels. Ezekiel sees wheels next to these creatures, and the wheels have a wheel inside of it. And every time they turn, they turn in the way in which the creatures were going, and the wheels all had eyes all around it. Listen to what he says here, verses 20 through 21. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, and the wheels rose along with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. And when those stood, these stood. And when those rose from the earth, the wheels along with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So you got that. 
You got your creatures, you got the wheels, they're all moving as the Spirit calls them to move, and they can all go in any direction without turning as they go. Got it? Everyone making sense of the vision so far? Okay, great. All right, so verses 22 through 25 then is very important. And the only thing I need to call out that's important in this part of the vision is Ezekiel sees an expanse. Say the word expanse. Okay, that'll be important as well. He sees an expanse as he looks up. But what he hears coming out of the expanse is the voice of God. Listen to how he describes the voice of God, verse 24. And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of the many waters, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult like the sound of an army. Army, army, army. And when they stood still, they let down their wings and the voice from above the expanse over their heads. When they stood still, they down their wings. So you got the vision of the Almighty God. And then verses 26 through 28 gives us the vision of Jesus. It says he looks up, he sees the expanse, he hears the rushing wind, he hears the sound of the Almighty, then he sees the likeness of a throne and a man sitting on that throne, shining, glimmering, all the things, burning like metal, and that the appearance, his radiance, the appearance of a rainbow is also there as well. He sees the vision of a bow, that which is like a bow around him. This is what it says, verse 28. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the one speaking. All right, we got that. Four creatures, four wheels, moving in concert with each other. North, south, east, and west don't have to turn in order to go those things, go those ways. You've got the expanse, the voice of the rushing mighty waters of the Lord. And then you have a vision of basically his son Jesus sitting on the throne and his brilliance is that of the rainbow. Let's put all these pieces together. What all does this mean? So as you look at this vision, this vision is characterized by two forms of imagery. One is which I already called out to you. I told you to underline things that had to deal with motion. In this vision, there's a lot of movement, okay? Which is just interesting. And, and, and actually, in some ways, it ought to be very uplifting. Because here Ezekiel is in exile. He's witnessed the destruction of his kingdom. The temple is not quite destroyed, but it's coming. You know, and Babylon has taken over and in the midst of all of this, he gets a vision of the Lord, of the Lord moving. And that should bring us, stir up some things of hope, right? Because the Lord is moving. Yes, great, move, O oh God. But the problem here is this vision isn't about God delivering them. His motion and movement is about his coming judgment. And so this vision that causes him to fall flat on his face is because this movement isn't great for Israel. God is on the move, but he's coming after them. The four-faced character is identified as the cherubim. Cherubim. Does anyone know what that is? Do you? What do you envision when you see cherubim? Cupid. Oh, good, good. Like a cherub. Yeah, me too. I, when I saw the words cherubim in the Bible, I always thought the baby with the wings or Cupid, that's great. Oh, that's so cute. But no, that is not the case. The cherubim is not a cute little baby. It is described as these four creatures. The cherubim is the throne bearer and guardian of God's holiness. 
if you remember the creation story when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord and he kicked them out, who does God place in front of the tree of eternal life so that they can't eat of it and then live forever? Does anyone know? The cherubim. A cherubim is placed in front of that tree. God says they cannot now eat from this and live and be like me forever. And so you've got a cherubim guarding the holiness, the incorruptible holiness of God. Ezekiel now sees them. Ah, you know, that's, that's a scary vision to see. Then, not only does he see them, he sees that they have four faces. What's the deal with the four faces? And I've seen this before in the book of Revelation 2, where they talk about the double wings and the different faces and they're different animals. I'm like, why? What does that mean? It's got to mean something and I have no idea. And like a good seminary student, I just moved to another book, right? So, but the four faces of the creatures... Remember, Ezekiel's beholding the true glory of God. If you're going to behold the glory of God, you're going to see him in all his radiance and brilliance. The point of the faces, it's all the crowning achievements of God's creation. It's the face of a human, the very good creation of human. The face of a lion, the highest, wildest animal that they would know. The face of an ox, the highest domestic animal that they would know. And the face of an eagle, the highest flying creature that they would know. All four together, Ezekiel calls them the living creatures as they represent God's greatness and everything that he has done. So you've got these four-faced creatures, the cherubim, the holiness of God in which they are protecting, and Ezekiel is seeing them. Now what's with the wheels? The wheels, first, there's two things with the wheels. The first thing is that they moved with the creatures, and they had eyes all around, and they can go north, south, east, and west without turning as they went. This is all to communicate God's glory as omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful. That's all that's being communicated there. So, spoiler alert, right? But the bigger thing with the wheels, and this is where we get the judgment part of this vision. What we are being described, what is being described in this vision is that the vision comes, he says, I looked and behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud of brightness around it. And the wheels are that of like the chariot. And what's coming out from the north, this described as riding on this storm and fire and things like that, they would understand that as the divine warrior. Now to the Jewish folks, the divine warrior would be a good sign. Because the divine warrior is going to do what? Going to ride in on the storm with a sword and he's going to deliver them from all their enemies, right? Yay, go God! But in this vision, this divine warrior coming on the storm and the chariot is coming out of the north, which is not a good omen. Because Israel's enemies all came out. The, well, traditionally, most of them all came out from the north. And this vision, this divine warrior who is God, is in the enemy seat. He's the enemy that's coming to destroy them. What? The prophecy of Jeremiah chapter 4 and 5, we won't read it, but the prophecy of Jeremiah talks about how God says to the people, I will send foreign nations to you to destroy Judah, to destroy and carry you away because of how you have profaned me, how you have made this relationship. I'm going to do that. 
And I think when we read that, we, we, we don't think of God necessarily. We think of the foreign nations that are coming in. But God says, I'm going to be the one to do that. And Ezekiel's vision and pairing this together, it's the divine warrior. Even though it's the other nations, this is the divine warrior coming against his own people, his own covenant bearer people to destroy them. God has moved through the parental intervention and has gotten down to the last one. I'm taking you away. And the sobering truth of all of that is, for God so judges the world, even you and me, even that of his own people. You may ask, how can God be the enemy? That sounds sacrilegious. That doesn't sound like that would be in the Bible. Jesus is supposed to be my friend. You know, there's songs about that. Like, how can that be? My friends, God didn't wake up one day in the Old Testament and say, you know what, I'm going to be the enemy today. That's not how this works. He's in the enemy's seat, not because of his choice, but because of his people's. His people have made him an enemy. They have profaned the temple. They have not kept the laws. They have gone with other nations. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, that's referred to as playing the harlot. In other words, they've cheated on God. They've gone with other nations. They've put their faith in other gods and protection that they could give them right away. And they have given cheap worship and cheap adoration to the God who created them. They have made him an enemy. They have put themselves in opposition. And so what is this purpose of this series? It's for us to understand the true nature of God. And the true nature of God, as I said last week, hates sin. And if you want to know what it looks like to be on the sinful side of things in opposition, God says, let me show you. This is what it's going to look like. This is what it looks like when you're in opposition to me. There are consequences for the sinful actions. One of the things about the true nature of God that we all have to understand is God is fully just, meaning he's always correct, meaning he cannot go against and divide against himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't be just. And if we have an unjust God, our faith doesn't mean anything. Grace doesn't mean anything. He has to be totally undivided in order for all this to make sense. And so if an undivided just God says, sin is the pen death is the penalty of sin, then so it shall be even for his chosen people. Death is the consequence for the brokenness and sin of the world. And God's chosen people in Ezekiel's time are now going to experience what that looks like. God is on the move. The divine warrior is coming and he's coming for them. Isn't that a great vision? Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> and the reason why he became an enemy, as I said before, they took for granted his promises. They took it for granted. They've witnessed all the goodness that God has done they know the old prophecies. They know about Abraham. They know about all these things, but they all took it for granted. They thought that, eh, there's other things that are here, and if I need be, I can fall back on that. But that's not how God works. It's not what he wants for us, and that's not the best way for us to live out our true nature and our true character. So this vision is not a source of comfort from the beginning. It's a sobering truth that the enemies of God will be destroyed, even if that is his own people. Here we see all of God's glory and character as a right and just God. And Ezekiel is seeing the rapid progression of his parental intervention and realizes the full weight and wage of rejecting him. For God so judges even you and me. Now, 
As I said, we're looking at the full character here of God. So if I'm saying here that God is just and sin must be destroyed and sinner will incur death, that is not the only face of God, is it? We as Christians also know the rest of the story and Ezekiel's vision also gets the rest of the story. What does he see at the end? A vision of what? Jesus. And Jesus' radiance looks like what? Shout it out. A rainbow. A rainbow. What is happening in this vision is a call back to creation. In fact, the whole prophecy of Ezekiel kind of walks us through the arc of creation. Creation, fall, destruction, and then restoration. The words expanse. All those things are the cherubim. That's all calling us back to creation. And in creation, Adam and Eve fall, and you have the wickedness in the land, and then God sends the flood, but raises up Noah. Why is Noah raised up? Because he is righteous. He is found to have faith and be righteous. And so through him works through Noah, right? And then the floods come, and after the flood waters recede, God puts in the sky a rainbow as a sign of his faithfulness. So Ezekiel's vision, in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of all the just things that God's going to do to sin, sees the hope, sees the Son of Man, sees Jesus on the throne, and his radiance is like a rainbow to remind him of the perseverance of faith and that not only is God just, but he is faithful to his promises. And the faithfulness of God's promises is found in their history with Abraham. Through Abraham, Isaac, and his descendants would be numerous as the stars, a mighty army for the Lord, right? And when Abraham questions God and says, how will I know that you are going to do this? He puts him to sleep and he has this vision. And I've preached on this before, so I won't go into it too much. This vision of broken animals on either side. And it's God who walks through these animals saying to Abraham that the terms of this covenant, the faithfulness is going to be broken by y'all. But the penalty I'm going to take, I'm going to take the penalty for your unfaithfulness. So that when I take the penalty, you can come past the cherubim against the eternal life and be back with me, my chosen people. So even in the midst of destruction and even in the midst of being carted away and God's judgment being on the move and all of the crazy things that come with it, he sees the vision of the rainbow to remind him of the endurance of faith and the faithfulness of God. God is just, but he is also faithful. He will, pay, will, he will take sin out. We all will die because of the brokenness of this world, but our death is not the end. We have eternal life through Christ, who is the one who walks through those broken pieces and will one day be broken for our sins. And that those of us who place our faith in him shall be saved. We go past that cherubim and we receive eternal life. Ezekiel sees all of this in this vision. Isn't that amazing? That's in the Old Testament. Before Jesus' name is even uttered, before there is even an idea of a cross, it's here in Ezekiel how God's going to lay all of this out. So what's our challenge then? What do we do with this? Why even talk about it? My friends, we run the risk of doing the very same thing as God's people did in Ezekiel's time. 
we run the risk of taking for granted the grace we have received in Jesus because we think it's established. It's done. Salvation can't be taken away, and I firmly believe that. But we could take for granted those things. We, if we live our lives out like awful people who profane the name of God but say, oh, Jesus saves, there's a disconnect there. Because Jesus saves enables us to live in our time of exile here until he calls us home to the kingdom that he's established. So the challenge is not to take it for granted like they did. Don't put your hope in the things that we have. Put your hope in the giver of all things. And in so doing, we continue to discover the true nature of God who is just and faithful and our true nature that he is redeeming us to be, his children who are welcomed past the cherubim to eternal life to be with him forever. Amen? So, these are hard teachings. This is a difficult passage. Do we shy away from difficult passages in Scripture? We could. In fact, a lot of pastors won't even touch Ezekiel because you get faces that I'm seeing right now. <laughs> faces of like, wow, okay, got it. But we can't, we, in order for us to know the rainbow, we have to understand the rain, right? In order for us to understand the joy that is set before the Lord, we got to understand the cross and the cost. Jesus died for you and me, my friends. For God so loved the world, didn't he? Judgment's going to come. We're to find our salvation in Jesus so that we can get past the judgment part, right? But that doesn't mean judgment stops. It's still going to come. But our salvation is found in him, just as Ezekiel saw. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for tough passages and I thank you for tough teachings as it draws us closer to you because it forces us to our knees to think, to pray, to discern, to comb through scriptures and rely on your Holy Spirit to teach us these things that we may not even thought of before. But you have promised that through our grief comes joy, through the sorrow comes joy, through the cross comes the joy of the resurrection. And so even in the midst of whatever valleys we may be in, Lord, remind us to look to the heavens, to see the one enthroned, his radiance like a rainbow, and remember your faithfulness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand. Through it all, our eyes need to be on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, the forgiver of our sins, the one who brings us past the cherubim to the tree of eternal life. Leave here knowing that truth and that hope and that promise, that he is faithful to that promise unto the very end, that death is not the end for those who place their faith in him, that death is only the end of this brokenness of this world and eternal life waits for us all. My friends, share that with others so that they too know why it is well with your soul. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God's people said amen. Have a great day.